This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. How are you doing today? Good. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz podcast guitarist Dave Snake Sabo, born and raised in New Jersey and was the original lead guitarist and childhood friend John Bon Jovi's band before forming Skid Row with Rachel Bolin. Skid Row shot to fame in the late 80s behind tunes such as Youth Gone Wild, I Remember You, 18 in Life, Monkey Business, and many more. Their latest album, produced by Nick Raskulinix, called The Gang's All Here, is a real burner. Really good record. Welcome to the music, Buzz. Dave. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm somewhat honored to be here. Only some, even though, well, the problem is, is that you guys, you guys are in the home of Reggie Miller, and being a lifelong New York Knicks fan, we have this <laughs> born right. in hatred for Reggie Miller and the Indiana Pacers. <laughs> I can't say anything because the pace, the Pacers are a client of mine, so I have to press mute at this point. <laughs> His lips are sealed. I was going to say, how do you feel about the Toronto Maple Leafs? That's more important than all, all the above. Well, I'm a New York Rangers fan, so. Yeah, of course you are. Anytime Ty Domi, when he was with the Maple Leafs, played the Rangers, I was always so bummed out because he was a hero to me when he was in New York. And then he went to Toronto. I mean, he was beating up Rangers. So I was like, whoa, no. Traitor. (laughs) Yeah, I understand the Reggie thing, man. I will tell you, though. Whenever you whenever you think about some of the greatest years in basketball, of course, you think about Magic and Larry, you think about Jordan or whatever. 
But man, what a magical time for basketball fans, right? Knicks, you know, I mean, as much as we hated the Knicks and you hated us, what a fun, what a fun run that was. It was incredible. The the 90s, every bit of the 90s were, it was amazing to be a Knicks fan, a Pacers fan, a Miami Heat fan, a Bulls fan. Uh, it was, you know, a Phoenix Suns fan, a Houston Rockets fan. It was really incredible. And, and like, I'm a sports fanatic and I've been like, uh, uh, a jock my whole life, want to be, you know, professional baseball player type of thing. I read that. I didn't know that. That's a good place to start. Can you tell us the baseball story? I've always been one of those people that if I if if I get my sights set on something that I want, I go after it with everything I have, and that that was just embedded in me since I was you know a toddler, I guess. Um, and having four older brothers will instill that in you as well, you know. Either succeed or get your ass whooped. <laughs> so uh, I took I took to baseball really naturally, and and uh, as a young youngster, I was uh, doing really well as as a pitcher. And my uncle uh, had played semi pro baseball, and when I was like thirteen years old, I pitched a perfect game in in my hometown, and um kind of little blurb in the papers. It was my first brush with notoriety. And uh, my, there was a, uh, the umpire was also uh, had connections with some single a teams and, and had suggested that they come down and see this 13 year old kid pitch. And, uh, and then when I was after that season was over, which was, I guess my crowning glory, I saw a kiss at Madison Square Garden and everything changed. And I'm <laughs> no not more kidding. baseball. <laughs> I'm not kidding, man. I, I saw them. The season was over in like August, September, or whatever. And I went to see Kiss on December 16th, 1977. And I walked, I walked out of there. Um a changed child. Uh I knew I wanted to do music for a living. And that that was it. I didn't know to what. To what degree or or which way I would go within the music business, I didn't know. Had no idea. It took me a year to figure out it was going to be the guitar. Um, but that, yeah, that that ruined the uh, the the baseball career, and much to the chagrin of, of many of my uh, family members. Who thought like, really, dude, you're giving this up? And I'm like, yeah, this is a no brainer for me. And they're like, dude, you're, you know, you're 14 years old picking up a guitar for the first time. You're too young to have been influenced by what so many of our guests were influenced by, which was the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That changed a, a lot of young boys. That obviously that didn't influence me. I wasn't born yet, but what did influence me what i mean the beatles did have a huge influence on me i i again i was raised in a house with four older brothers so there was music from every period of time going on constantly in my house it was such a great environment to grow up in it was elvis to jerry lee lewis and little richard uh to all the to the doo-wop artists to uh Moving on to all the great Motown stuff, you know, Jackson Five and Diana Ross and the Supremes and Marvin Gaye and and uh, and then like the Hollies and uh, and then like later on like the Raspberries and 
the Muscle Shoals stuff and, you know, Otis Redding and Jerry Butler and Sam Cooke and uh, all these things. And then, you know, Black Sabbath and Humble Pie, Spooky Tooth, uh, Peter Frampton later on. And so all these things had a profound effect on me. And the great thing I always found about growing up in that environment was there was no quote-unquote genres and no barriers. It was either you loved it or you didn't. And, and you weren't subjected to any ridicule or anything like that for something that you might like or not like. It just was. And I was also a big fan of, of all the AM pop music that was coming out, like the Hudson Brothers and First Class and Paper Lace and, and those kind of one-hit wonders. And they all of it, I had collected a ton of 45s and uh, my brothers had all the vinyl. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of records. And so uh, that was my education, man. And I couldn't have asked for anything better because it it gave me uh, a, a breadth of knowledge uh, of music how do you feel that it influenced your songwriting because i was back looking through like the very first skid row record you co-wrote every song on that record right? yeah we have a great partnership rachel and i and we were raised in somewhat of the same environment we're the same age uh we're the youngest in our family of siblings and we were raised on literally the same stuff so he comes from the same pedigree as i do and uh what it instilled in me was instrumentation, especially the the Motown stuff the, uh, and the Muscle Shoals stuff, because those those backing bands were just monsters, man. The Wrecking Crew and uh, I forget what, I forget I forget what the name of the the Motown backing band was, but they were all just monstrous players. So it instilled in me a sense of musicianship and musicality, but I think. And just as important, if not more, was a sense of melody, which something I really gravitated towards was has always been melody and uh, arranging, getting a great lesson in, in you know, uh, how to progress from an A verse to a pre-chorus to a chorus and so on and so forth. And, you know, song structure, uh, how to get your point across and not take forever to get there, you know? And When Rachel and you are writing songs together, do you both write music and lyrics? At the, or both of you do both? Yeah, he's a better lyricist than I am, for sure. He's much more colorful uh, and is much more metaphorical than I am. I'm kind of more black and white. And so oftentimes what happens is, is that he will come up with something and I may say something that inspires the line that he'll come up with or the passage that he'll come up with. But yeah, we both contribute on, on everything. Uh, melody. My, my forte seems to be as his, his lyrics, mine might be melody and stuff. So uh, we just tended since day one to complement each other. You're the one that comes up with the addictive anthemic choruses that are so much a part of who you guys are. I think we both do. I think it's we both kind of inspire each other in the course of writing. I don't think that if I was sitting by myself in a room that I would ever come up with that stuff. Uh, maybe parts of it, but I think it's the combination of the two of us that really makes it special. And and 
has afforded us an opportunity to still be doing this some 36, 37 years later. How long have you known Rachel then? 37 years. Same neighborhood, the same area you guys grew up in? No, I actually grew up about an hour and a half north of him. Well, an hour and a half being if you had to take two buses to get where he lived, which is what I had to do. I couldn't get a job in uh, in my hometown uh, of Saraville and or the surrounding area. The best I could get was working in like a, a warehouse. I wouldn't cut my hair. I wouldn't bend to uh, whatever you want to call it, what society deemed was appropriate at that time. Uh, I found a music store in Tom's River, New Jersey, by happenstance, that hired me. I convinced them to hire me. I worked in the back room for a little while, and then they moved me up front. And I started dealing with customers. And uh, one of the customers that would come in on a regular basis was Rachel. And I remember him walking in the store and being like, that dude's a rock star. Like that just, he's a rock star. I was always networking like that. That's, I wasn't shy about approaching people and engaging uh, because I knew that I had a great teacher still do in, in Jamba Joey's. And, you know, I've known him since I was 11 and I was able to watch firsthand his rise to success and and how he achieved that and maintained it. And so that was a great education. And one of the things that I, I know that he did was he always was networking. And so he was always ingratiating himself to people in the business or, or that could possibly become some sort of partner or, or whatever be affiliated with. And so I approached Rachel and just started talking to him, uh, and we got along really great. It was it was very simple, very easy. And as we talked, we realized that we both had bands and that we were both were the primary songwriters in, in our respective bands. And so that conversation led to me dropping every name that I've ever come in contact with while I was networking in New York City. And, oh, I know this A&R guy here at Electra. I know this A&R guy at Atlantic. I know this person. I know, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, dropping names and hurting my back picking them up of all the names I dropped. And, uh, <laughs> Ouch. He was skeptical, but I think slightly impressed by my chutzpah, maybe. And uh, Skeptical, but slightly impressed. <laughs> we said definitely suspect, but slightly impressed. And he, uh, he and I decided that maybe we should, you know, give it a shot writing together. And it really was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. And we came up with something that was kind of cool. And, you know, we started realizing very quickly how we complemented each other kind of filled the gaps in each other's talent profile, if you will, or, or what we did well and maybe what we didn't do so well. I mean, when you think about it, that's a common plus to the duality of people working together, whether it's Lennon McCartney or Becker Fagan, that duality serves Elton and Bernie. It just makes for a, a better sounding board and, and just a place for production. You know, being for, for being two heads are better than one. Yeah, man. And, and you know what? It was just so serendipitous. Uh, you know, how do I get a gig at a music store, uh, you know, an hour and whatever away? And in this one music store in a strip mall uh, that this guy walks in. I look back on it. And I'm so thankful for the way the universe can work at some points. You know, you just go. Like that, you couldn't really, you know, how do you write that? Like, that just, it's crazy. 
And 37 years later, we're still together and productive and still best friends. And it's just really it's special. And it's, it's I'm very humbled by the whole thing. And, and uh, I have tremendous gratitude for, you know, whomever the big guy is upstairs for allowing this to happen. And How does the Bon Jovi history tie into that? We grew up three streets away from each other. And as when he picked up the guitar... Uh, he immediately like started writing songs, and he was taking lessons from a guy across the street from him that became both of our mentors. And so when I picked up the guitar, John had been playing for a little while, and I was like, dude, can you show me some stuff? And he showed me some stuff, and I was a quick learner, and he was like, you should go take lessons from the guy who teaches me. And John was headed down a different, more like a a, a songwriter type of path, and and uh, but you could tell that this guy was going to be something like he just had that X factor. Like he had it. It was, it was obvious. And so I went to his teacher and, and his name was Al Paranello and great, great, great man and had huge influence on both John and I. But one of the things is John was, was putting bands together and eventually put Bon Jovi together was like, he always told me, he's like, dude, you know, um, you put together, a great band and I will do everything in my power to help you. And he stayed true to his word. And so he got you the first deal with Atlantic. Here's how it went is that John started helping us out in the sense of offering us a lot of great advice regarding the business of music and also regarding songs. And so we would bring our songs to him and he would go, that's good, but it's not great. We'd be like, Oh, awesome. And so, <laughs> so we, we got to the point where he would he would kind of guide us and say, this is why it's not awesome. Like this thing right here is not working. Your chorus isn't working. And so it was a really, it was kind of a master class in, in songwriting. It really was so influential. And Richie Sambora as well uh, was uh, a part of that to a certain degree. And, um, and I'm so eternally grateful to both of them because it really taught us to strive for, for greatness and what our definition and interpretation of that was. Uh, good was not good enough. And so being really ambitious as we were, Rachel and I, and then the band as well as we put together the band, uh, it was great direction. And so... From John and, and like I said, to a certain extent, Richie, came Doc McGee. Uh, Doc, was, Doc was John's manager. And so I worked with. What did you work with him on, on the Motley Crue stuff? No, I worked with him on uh, Bon Jovi, New Jersey. I worked with him on Kiss Revenge. I worked with him. What was it? Um, Scorpions, Skin Deep. Awesome work. Yeah, he, he's well, he was wonderful. Great, great guy. Still is. Still, he's my big brother. And him and his brother, Scott, uh, immediately started managing us. And we were like, we didn't even ask them. They kind of told us. And that was pretty special. So with that, uh, coincidentally, we were building a really strong fan base and following in the, in the New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania area. And so... We had no need to go to L.A. We were very, very proud to be from New Jersey. and We wore that on our sleeves daily. We started garnering interest from different labels. And, of course, Doc and John were great conduits 
to that. When John was signed the Polygram, now Universal, they had just, you know, a couple of years prior signed Cinderella and some other bands. So right. they were kind of up to their neck in it already with, you know, similar type of, of music, I guess. So Atlantic and Geffen became the forerunners of this bidding war, which was, you don't really hear that anymore, but uh, it was quite exciting. We really felt strongly about Atlantic. I mean, Jason Flom and 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 Dorothy Sisignano uh, were were showing up everywhere. Every show that we did within a 150 mile radius, they were there. At one point, they flew in a helicopter with Ahmed Erdogan, Doug Morris, Twin Jerem, Jason, and and Dorothy flew into a roller rink in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, to see us play. And we were like, oh, my God. Like, I was, we were all very, very aware of who who Ahmed Erdogan and, and Doug Morris were. And uh, did the roller, did the roller rink staff know who they were when they walked in the door? No, <laughs> probably weren't up to it. <laughs> but they might have gotten a clue when they saw the helicopter land. You know? I was gonna say. <laughs> well, the home of the home of Led Zeppelin and Ray Charles. And, you know, I mean, gosh, you wouldn't want to be on that label. Aretha Franklin. Sure. Yeah. I, to us. I remember Jason Flom calling me up when when we were in the middle of this thing. He goes, "Don't you want to see, you know, that giant A in the middle of your record?" And uh, in my mind, I'm I'm like, "Of course I do. I'm a kid, and, and uh, <laughs> all I want to do is be able to, you know, make records and tour." And so, uh, and then Geffen came in, and and we kind of got the impression that Geffen was getting involved just because of their relationship with Doc. And but they had offered, you know, an awful lot of money and a decent point structure. And so Doc called us one day. We were we were down at Rachel's parents' house. We rehearsed in their garage. Doc goes, Congratulations, you know, you got a record deal. And and uh it was everything at that at that moment, all those dreams of, of getting a record deal and, and actually becoming legitimized, if you will, as an artist. You start going, this is really happening. Like, I'm just this punk ass from Saraville, New Jersey, and Tom's River, New Jersey. And we're just, this is really happening. We put something together that someone wants to release. It's amazing. None of that got lost on us. But what happened was, is that it was Geffen. And we were immediately deflated. Uh, they were a California label or Los Angeles, and uh, we wanted to be with a New York label. Uh, they had, I don't think they had any interest in us being Skid Row. I think they wanted us to be Bon Jovi Jr. Um, and, you know, we played, we did a showcase for them in New York, at SIR in New York. We played them 19 songs, and they thought we had two good songs one of which didn't even end up making the record. So, so that's where they had. That's where they were. Whose ears? Are we talking about Tom's or John's? Yep, both. And they had uh, uh, brought a producer by the name of Bob Rose with them as well. Yeah, they felt we had two two good songs. And uh, so, about a half an hour later, after being deflated in such a way, like you, you we were able to celebrate for maybe th three minutes. Of that, of that lifelong dream, uh, that all oh, those words that you want to hear, uh, we called Doc back, and we're like, "This is wrong. We can't do this." It, it just, and we went through all the reasons, and he's like, "Okay, I get it. 
let me uh let me get on the phone so he happened to be in los angeles and got on the phone with Ahmed Erdogan and Ahmed was like what do i have to do to get the band so doc was like well there's some, you know i already gave him to david and you know david geffen and you know he's i'm just like don't worry about david i'll i'll take care of david what do i have to do to get the band and uh he did what he had to do and at the end of the day we were we were so thankful and and so honored honored that that you know a label wanted to work with us uh so badly and we that says had a, a lot of that says a lot about doc too i mean in that moment i mean obviously that's his job but you know you're not talking about small names you're talking about david geffen and having to go back and tell them you know changing course doing what you guys wanted to do that was that's uh, very honorable that's a good friend yeah i remember doc i remember doug morris saying uh you know doc's the only guy that makes me smile when he's kicking me in my ass you know it's <laughs> and it's it's kind of true he ha he's a charismatic figure that has just this amazing way about him that you know he could convince you to steal from an old woman you know in the nicest possible way so him and his brother were 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 great, and we worked with them for you know, gosh, it had to be fifteen years at least. And I still work with them in a managerial capacity. Right. I was going to ask you about that. So um, I've just noticed over the years of, of doing what I do, you know, looking up for a management contact, and I've obviously worked with McGee several times. But you know, you look in the, the directories and stuff, and I remember the first time like seeing your name, I'm like, wait, well, he's, <laughs> he's in a band. Well, he's not. He's not a man. Yeah, but you are. So, you know, yeah. what have you, and I knew, and I know that now, but I didn't know that at the time. So yeah. Tell us about that a little bit. I, uh, I was always intrigued and, and, uh, to a certain degree enamored with the music business, the business of it. And so as a young guy, you know, 17, 18 years old, I started educating myself and, and reading every book I could get my hand on and, you know, billboards, this business of music and, and stuff of the like. And, uh, I wanted to understand how it worked. I wanted to understand the terminology. I wanted to understand what it all meant and how it how it ran. And maybe that was a bad idea. <laughs> but in in because I didn't want to be the truth of the matter was is I didn't want to be this this young, dumb Polish guitar player who couldn't sit in a meeting with Doug Morris and understand what he was talking about. That was really important to me. I wanted to be, I wanted to be aware and cognizant of what was going on in our career. Now, being being aware and being able to do something about it are two different things. Yeah, so that's why you need a great team around you. But uh, so I had always been interested in the management side of things. I used to, Doc used to call me the fly because I wouldn't get away from him. I would I would be around him always and Scott learning. It was really important to me because I loved it. And and so when time when we were when we were on the uh somewhat of a downturn with Skid Row and we had a lot of a lot of time on our hands, we weren't we were still playing, we were still touring, but we weren't doing it to the capacity that we had done earlier in our careers. So I had moved to Los Angeles and I just started showing up at, at Doc and Scott's office every day because we were we were like brothers. So I had nothing to do during the day. So I just started showing up there. That's the Sunset office? Yeah, 8730 West Sunset. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I started showing up there. 
And then I started uh, engaging with the people in the office and got to know everybody there that I didn't know. I knew like half the office already. And then started pushing my way to be involved in some manner. And so by not going away and, and continually forcing myself upon certain situations, I, I got involved. Yeah, exactly. It really, ex I wouldn't stop showing up. And finally, uh, I was offered a position within the company. Give this guy a job so he'll do something, for Christ's sake. I mean, I was doing <laughs> it for free. And I was doing it for free. And then uh, they saw that I understood because I had, again, I had been over their shoulder for so many years. How could I not have taken all that in? My inspiration uh, and my my kind of my purpose of doing it, too, was I wanted to help out my friends and other musicians who might not understand the business. I wanted to help them not get screwed over. I wanted to be able to protect them. Uh, because at the end of the day, I'm an artist too. So I'm always going to be on the artist side, you know, unless it's something that's so blatantly obvious, I shouldn't be, but you know, by and large, that's where, where my viewpoint is. And so I uh, I took that position, and it just worked out really well. I, I I've been able to work with a bunch of great bands and musicians and artists, and uh, you know, to a certain degree, I still do it. Uh, not to the degree that I did, because our Skid Row is really in the last seven years uh, have we really upped our touring schedule and stuff like that. We're doing you know nearly a hundred shows a year or more, and and uh, we've been kind of under the radar. Uh, doing that and i'm just uh, i'm amazed by people still come to our shows and want to hear this music and so it, it's really humbling just listening to the gangs all here today it's as good as ever but even the production well masculinity is phenomenal and that's that's a story in and of itself but uh tell us about your new singer man your new singer is a is wailing eric uh well he's in He's incredible. He's from Stockholm, Sweden. I've known about Eric since 2009. Someone sent me a video of him doing 18 and a Life on Swedish Idol, which is obviously a Swedish counterpart to American Idol. And he sang 18 and a Life, and he sang it amazing, and he was a kid. And it was very flattering. Didn't think really anything beyond that, just that it was really flattering. Then as time went on, Every once in a while, someone would say, we know things are going great for you guys, but if, if, if something ever, if the wheels fall off a little bit, there's this guy in Stockholm. That's insane. And then we were like, yeah, we know. We we're familiar with him. Thank you. And then in 2019, he was in a band called Heat, and they ended up touring Europe with us. Uh, and so we heard him sing mostly every night, and he was just freaking great. But again, didn't really have any interaction with him. And, and uh didn't uh, know anything beyond that he was a guy from Swedish Idol and that he's great and he's a great performer. But we were fine. We, you know, we were doing our own thing. So cut to January, February of this year, after the holidays, we realized that, you know, uh, our old singer ZP and the band, we, were, we had been moving in in opposite directions slowly but it, it was it got to the point where there was a great divide 
And we had hoped that it would work its way back together. And this is nothing against him because he's a good guy and he's a talented singer. And But it just it stopped working. Uh, two different viewpoints, two different ambitions, I guess. So we had to make a decision when we were in the middle of this record, not even the middle, towards the end of the record. Uh, we had maybe two or three songs that had some vocals on it. We realized that we need to make a change. And it was so difficult. We were like, how are we going to? We're in the middle of making a record. And, you know, and just, but it wasn't the record that we had envisioned. The 11th hour, man. How was it changing? I mean, you talk about different directions. What was he doing? So you knew the singer, the the guy that had been there just previously wasn't going to do it. So were you just doing. Or had, was he on a few tracks or something? He sang on a couple tracks, and, and and we just realized that I guess he, maybe his vision for the record and, and sort of his uh, maybe vision for the band moving forward um, wasn't the same as ours. Uh, we had uh, different viewpoints, and so we couldn't get to uh, a healthy midpoint. I don't even want to say a compromise. It's just that you know, we had, we've had this band for so long. It's, it's, you know, it's our band. Uh, it's, it's Scotty's and Rachel's and mine. And so we have a certain way that we do things. And, and while we'll compromise, uh, you know, if it, if it makes sense, uh, we, it's still our band. And we want everybody who's in it to be a part of it and sharing that. But at the end of the day, it's our band. So, uh, we, uh, we realized that we needed to make a change and we had no idea what we were going to do. Uh, Rachel had been uh, checking out Eric's YouTube videos and they were really impressive. And he was singing everything from Iron Maiden to Van Halen to Rush to Queen. And he had just, he's got a story in and of itself. He had uh, battled and, and defeated cancer uh, and he had a new lease on life and, um, uh, he dedicated himself to his voice, to singing in whatever capacity that meant. And coincidentally through those videos, Rachel looked at me and goes, wow, let's call him. And so we had some shows on the books that, that we were going to have to cancel uh, but we said, you know what, let's, let's see if he'll fill in, if he'd be interested in filling in. He's like, my, my health right now won't allow me to do that. I'm sorry. So that, that, so we had to cancel a couple shows. We said, let's send him a song or two and just tell him we'd love to hear his voice. We wrote some songs. We'd love to hear his voice. One of those songs was the gang's all here. And he sent it back maybe 24, 48 hours later. And he had done it on his, uh, in his home studio. And I, we all had gotten it and Rachel and, and Nick Raskulinus called or texted me and said, have you listened to it yet? I'm like, no, uh, I'm in an airport. I'm in a, you know, the sky club or whatever. And, and there's no privacy here. And they're like, you gotta, you gotta figure it out. You gotta listen to this. So I'm like, oh, I don't know what to expect. Cause they're not really giving me an indication whether it's terrible or great. So I go into the bathroom and go in a bathroom stall and get down on my knees and, and, and put the, phone up to my ear and i'm like holy shit like this is beyond what i had hoped for and so i immediately texted him back i'm like holy shit and and there rachel and nick was like right 
this is like a game changer. This is next level. And so we sent them more songs and they were just as good, if not better. So we did something a band has never done in the past, I think, which was <clears throat> have a new lead singer invited into the band without ever jamming with him or being in a room with him. So wow, no kidding, man. It wow. was crazy, man. It was crazy. So this guy is in Stockholm. He agrees to be in the band and we haven't even had a beer with the guy. Yet. <laughs> so. That's the world we live in now, right? It's yeah, crazy, right? right? It really is. <laughs> but he sang his ass off, so. You it know. was, un I mean, he really was above and beyond. And so in order to, to uh, speed the process up, he sang eight of the 10 songs remotely from Stockholm with Nick Raskulinitz in the studio, guiding him along the way. And by the time he finally got to the States, 80% of the record was done. And then when he got to the States, we had four days before we started the Scorpions residency. So we actually all met together on a Tuesday, uh, first time ever. And it was like seeing a long lost brother. It was crazy. Uh, he and I met at the uh, at JFK in New York because he had a layover there. And that's where I was flying out of. So I went there a couple hours early just to get a uh, take the get a gauge on 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 who this guy is, and it really was like uh, I had known this guy forever. Uh, first thing we did, we saw each other and smiled and hugged. It was like, wow, I don't even know you, but I feel like I know you. And he's like, you want to get a beer? I'm like, yes, of course. So we go get a beer, and we're just he's got the same sense of humor, so we're laughing at stupid, stupid stuff, and. Uh, same like influences he's old school you know uh and uh kind of the same humble full of gratitude disposition that we have and this positivity considering what he went through uh this new lease on life that is infectious and this energy like it, it comes out in his vocals. You can feel that. Does. Yeah, it really does. That's what we felt when we first heard it. It comes out in the record too. Thank the you. record's incredible. It really is good. I was I was listening to actually an interview with Nick Raskulinix that he had done. I don't remember if it was with Eddie Trunk or somebody. And I think it was. And he was asking him what projects are you working on right now or something. He mentioned Skid Row and, and it was before the record came out. And he's like, you've got to hear this, you know? And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, uh, it'd be interesting, Nick, working on on Skid Row. I wonder what that sounds like. It was one of the one of the greatest experiences that myself personally and we as a band have ever had. I mean, this all started uh, this this whole thing. I can only describe it as as serendipitous. In in all honesty, like it's you can't write these stories because no one would believe you. You know how how do you hire a guy that you've never met? You know how do you how do you record a record with a guy that you've never met? How do you find a guy after you parted ways with somebody? How do you find him? Like, you don't have anything in place. It's just all crazy. Nick, uh, uh, kind of the same thing. You know, Rachel lives in Nashville. There's a tight-knit music community down there. Everybody, as you guys, I'm sure, are aware. And so everybody, it's like six degrees of separation down there, or even less than that, two degrees. And so uh, Rachel met Nick. Uh, through a friend. And one of the first things 
that Nick said to Rachel is he, he goes, I, I want to produce a Skid Row record. So Rachel calls me up and he's like, you ever heard of this guy, Nick Raskulinus? I'm like, of course, very familiar with his resume. I go, he's great. And he goes, he's just told me he wants to produce a Skid Row record. Then we're both like, ah, he's just being nice. He's a nice guy. He's a Jersey boy. So we, we kind of treated it as that. That's the cynical side of us, I guess, you know. Next time he saw Nick, Nick said, dude, I'm, I'm very serious. I, I want to produce a Skid Row record. So we're like, let's make this happen. And everything rolled really fast. The logistical uh, part of it, dealing with the label and the, and the management and stuff like that, that, that went like that. Uh, it all went that quick, actually. So we got on a Zoom call, the band and Nick, and we're like, okay. What's your idea? He's like, I want to make the quintessential Skid Row record. He goes, I'm very familiar with your band and the music. I've been a fan since day one. I've seen you guys play a bunch of times. I know what the essence of this band is. And he goes, and through the years, you guys have gotten away from that. I want to make, I want to bring you back in a very, very modern way. Back to the essence of Skid Row, of why you guys started this band, of why you guys started writing songs together and, and writing songs for this band and your ambition and your 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 dreams and your thoughts of, of this thing. And he goes, you know, you can't recapture your youth, but the, the impetus and the essence of why you did that is still within you. So we just got to peel the layers back of the onion and revisit that. And immediately I was like, for me personally, I was like, I get it. I get it. And I became the 16-year-old kid sitting in front of my mirror with an Ibanez Iceman thinking I, or pretending to be Paul Stanley, Ace Freely, Randy Rhodes, Eddie Van Halen, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. The list goes on and on forever and forever. And I realized like, yeah. Yes, I get it. And and everybody else had the same experience or similar experience. So one of the things that we realized when he, he told us he wants to take everything that we have, all these songs that we have, uh, deconstruct and rebuild them if need be. So we were like, that's really interesting. We've actually never done that before. Uh, so one of the things we had to come to terms with, which we did immediately, was put our trust in this guy who's a relative stranger, but he's got such an incredible resume and he's such a cool guy. Like you sit there and go, he's not condescending in any way and he's not full of himself. He's an excellent musician. He's an excellent songwriter. He's an excellent producer. He's an audiophile. Um, and he's got this uh, unending creativity. So extremely prolific. So, we uh, we realized that in order to do this, not only did we have to put our 100% our trust in, in him to guide us, but we also had to leave our egos in the parking lot. And uh, once we did that, it was incredible. And we did it immediately. We realized, we were like, what do we got to lose? Like, And we were, we were kind of just happy that this guy, well, we were very happy that this guy wanted to do a record with us. So we got in a room cranked our amps up drums are you know bombastic and and we're all in a room and we start jamming these songs out and he starts going around going i love that i love that i love that 
right here, I think instead of doing that, we got to come up with something different. So we're like, okay. Fiddling around. He goes, okay, you're getting close. <clears throat> Why don't you think in terms of like what you did in the second verse of Monkey Business? And we're like, I know that guy. And, uh, and so we were just getting reacquainted with ourselves. And the, the all these doors and windows started opening up in our creative selves. And, and then it became like this challenge in the best possible way. Like, he'd be like, you know, that's cool and everything, but I think you got more in you. Matter of fact, I know you got more in you. I know you got something more. And I'm like, you're damn right I do. And then, you know, so it's that kind of thing, that kind of exchange. And that's kind of, you know, that kind of rising to the challenge in the best possible way. Well, and you guys clearly are are still coachable. I remember him telling a story about working with Rush on those last two records and how he would go in, how he was nervous the first few times, you know, kind of telling Neil what to do. Yep. But then how things kind of the tide kind of turned and, and and then it just became a matter of respect. And I think that's, but you got to be coachable. You know, you can't, right? I mean, at the end of the day. You do a second album with an artist, you know, you were doing the right thing the first time too. Well, we kind of, I kind of looked at it like, look, if, if Neil Pert can take direction, I, I sure as hell can, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> if, 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 you know, Foo Fighters, if Dave Grohl can take direction, I better be able to, you know, uh, and it, that, that wasn't even a question, just his demeanor and his, his sensibilities and, uh, his overall nature, uh, just, it, 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 it sort of dictates that, uh, in the best possible chemistry. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, we became, we all became family really, really fast. And then Eric became a part of that family really fast as well. So, you know, this whole thing has been unexpected incredibly humbling and gratifying the record uh, debuted within the top 20 in like 10 or 11 countries and if i'm going to be honest that hasn't happened to skid row in 27 years like that's a freaking miracle good for you guys two weeks ago in in like the japanese rock magazine where they have the charts in the back of it we were number one in Burn Magazine's, you know, uh, retail and reader poll and ahead of so many, you know, bands that I love and admire. We've got no, you know, like I have no explanation for it other than maybe we're being offered a, another shot or a chance or I'm not sure what, but I'm I'm really, really enjoying the moment. Uh, we all are. And take advantage of it, man. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, I mean. We're all really long in the tooth, you know what I mean? And so uh, to be able to give it, be given an opportunity like this and, and to have the people responding to our new music in the, in the way that they have and really, really uh, responding to Eric as the front man for the band and, and uh, everything that he brings to the table that has uh, brought us to another level as, as a band. Uh, I I don't know if I thought it would be possible after all this time, but I'm um, I'm proven wrong. Even your recognizable, iconic, murderous scrawl, <laughs> you know, for uh, for your for your your logo, it, it still serves you well. I mean, it's, it's it's clear to me that you guys were more about the music than you were getting caught up in super, you know, 
co complex or heavy concept. And, and there you were in the midst of White Snake, even Bon Jovi, New Jersey, Kingdom Come, Slaughter, Stick It To You, all these projects that I got involved with. Um, they they all wanted something kind of elaborate. You guys kept it simple, and it really worked for you throughout. Well, the great thing that we've all, particularly Scotty, Rachel, myself, because we've been there since the very beginning, one of the things that I'm grateful for is that we we're all the three of us were raised in you know very blue collar lower middle class uh, environments and and we all were taught to be grateful and thankful for whatever good comes your way in life. Like life doesn't owe you anything. Uh, any success you have is not owed to you. It's not a birthright. Uh, so be thankful and be humble and. Because at some point, it's not going to be there anymore. So you better be prepared for it. So I think having that mentality enabled us to persevere. Because while it's exciting and it's amazing to be selling a ton of records and be playing you know, in front of uh, the amount of people that we were able to play in front of at a certain particular time in our career, it doesn't last forever, uh, at least for most of us. And so you have to be really, really on solid ground within yourself and your your character and your mentality and your outlook and how you your perspective on how you view things and so that's and you have to know when to stop playing baseball <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can thank gene simmons and paul stanley Ace really <laughs> Peter uh, well we uh we maintain that but we still maintain that mentality we say it on stage every night that without the audience there is no skid row and because of them They've given us the gift of being able to play music for a living. And that's all we ever wanted to do. Like, you know, when you're recording your first record, you have aspirations, as everybody does, of selling a bazillion records and being superstars and, you know, having the Rolling Stones open up for you and all these all these great ideas. But really, in, in our heart, while we may have had those aspirations, the reality was... We just want to sell enough records to make another record, <laughs> to be honest. To keep doing it. Exactly. It's what we wanted to do for a living. And we would do anything we could to not have to go back to working in a warehouse, uh, driving a truck, whatever that may be. And they're all admirable jobs. It just wasn't us. It, was, it wasn't what we wanted for our lives. And so we were willing to do anything in order to achieve that. And lo and behold... 36, 37 years later, we're still able to make music. I do have a question that I got to dial the clock back on. Um, the Moscow Music Peace Festival, you got to tell us. I know you guys were the first band to come out that day, I think, weren't you? It was, yes. Tell us about that experience, if you would, real quick. Well, you put a 24, 25-year-old kid from New Jersey in a place that we were taught was the enemy. Like, they were the bad guy. We were we were not supposed to engage with them on a friendly basis. So when you started seeing things kind of warm up between the United States and Russia and the rest of Russia and the rest of the world, I should say, um, when this opportunity came to us and Doc put this all together uh, with a guy in, in Russia by the name of Stas Naman. 
And it was, you know, Doc has always thought bigger than everybody. And so when he came up with this idea, we're all like, that's impossible. And sure enough, it wasn't impossible. So to be traveling on a plane from the United States to Europe to Russia with Ozzy and Zach. And Zach is an old friend. He used to come into the same music store uh, back in Thomas River. So uh, we've known Zach since he was 18. And so to be an old dear friend. And so I spent my whole time, the whole flight with him, he and I together. So Zach and Ozzy's band with Geezer Butler and Motley Crue and Cinderella and Bon Jovi, Scorpions. Uh, it was an experience that you're you're traveling with a lot of your heroes. And that's really to to get that straight in your head is really, really a rough one, man. Because here I am. I want to run up to everybody and ask for their autograph. You know? Yeah. And you just, you know. And all of a sudden, they're kind of your peers. But what I remember, what I remember. And you're heading to Russia. And we're heading to Russia, to Moscow. And what I remember, there's so many great memories. I mean, we, we all the bands uh, mingled together. And, and there's two things that really stood out. One was, we were, I was walking with like uh, Dave Bryan from Bon Jovi and a couple other people from some other bands. I think a couple of guys from Cinderella may have been there. And we went into Red Square, and there was a kid in there playing acoustic guitar, uh, a little bit younger than me, maybe 21, 22. And he had his guitar case open, as uh, you know, as people do when they're playing on the street. And he was singing Yesterday by the Beatles. And he couldn't speak the word of English, but he could sing Yesterday by the Beatles beautifully. And I made eye contact with this guy while he was singing. And I was all of a sudden just taken aback by how beautiful this was and how he was communicating with me through music. And it just made me realize that music supersedes all boundaries, uh, language barriers, uh, political barriers, religious barriers, cultural barriers. It supersedes everything. It goes beyond it. And it's the ultimate universal communicator. And that really had a profound effect on me. And it lasts to this day. And then the second thing happened was right before we went on, it was in Lennon Stadium, which is where the 1980 Olympics were that the United States boycotted. And they it was really ironic to me because they lit the Olympic torch right before we went on. So the Olympic torch hasn't been lit in eight years. We boycotted those Olympics and there's a band from the United States coming on and that Olympic torch got lit. I was like, wow, it's pretty significant. Uh, it, it, and I'm sure they didn't think about it like, oh, there's an American band coming on or anything like that. It was just to start off the festivities, but it really resonated with me. Well, great. Thanks so much for joining us and congrats again on the new record. You guys have something to be proud of. The pleasure's all mine, guys. I, I really can't up for taking the time and to speak with me. And I, and I hope that when we come to Indiana and I'm wearing my New York Knicks jersey, my Patrick Ewing jersey, we can all look up and have We'll a bring you another shirt to wear, no problem. Of course you will. <laughs> if, if that's what you're asking, yeah. we, we can hook you up. All right, guys. We'll come check you guys out, man. Thank you. So I hope to see you guys. I really do. And uh, thank you again for this. It's a great platform. So I Thank you. It. Take care. Oh, yeah.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 